Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host Jean Mias and I hope you are all ready for another Myth Digest. In today's episode we're going to be learning all about a heroine of Greek mythology that you may already know as Helen of Troy. Helen's story begins, like many others, with her conception. Her beginnings are strange by normal standards, although only really passingly notable in terms of mythology. Her mother, like many before her, unwittingly caught the eye of Zeus, ruler of the gods on Olympus. For reasons known only to Zeus himself, he took on the shape of a swan before he found his way into her home and took advantage of her. Thus, Helen was conceived. Her birth was no less strange than her conception, and shortly after Helen's mother's encounter with the king of the gods, she brought into the world not a baby girl, but an egg. And inside the egg was Helen. Now even at this early stage in Helen's story, there are two different versions of Helen's conception and who Helen's mother was. Although Zeus is consistently painted to be her father, the woman that he had sex with in the shape of a swan is known either as Leda or Nemesis. Leda was a mortal woman and the queen of Sparta married to King Tandarius. Nemesis, on the other hand, was in fact a goddess. And in all versions of the story, Helen grows up in Sparta, raised as the child of Tyndarius and Leda, but in the versions in which Nemesis was in fact her birth mother, the goddess gives up her daughter to be raised by Leda and Tyndarius in Sparta in order to avoid the wrath of Hera, Zeus's wife. From the moment she hatched, Helen was a remarkable beauty, and those who set their eyes on her did indeed remark. So much so that her reputation as even the most beautiful child spread across the Mediterranean. One man in particular, on hearing tell of this extraordinary little girl, developed an all-consuming obsession with her beauty. Meanwhile, Helen passed her early years in the palace of her mortal parents' kingdom. She grew up alongside her three siblings, two twin brothers known as Castor and Pollux, and a sister named Clytemnestra. But when Helen was barely 12 years of age, this man whose imagination she had so captured came for her. His name was Theseus, king of Athens. Having made a pact with his friend Pirithous that they would both marry daughters of Zeus, Theseus set his sights on Helen, regardless of her age. He wheedled his way into her home with simpering sentences to stroke her father's ego, a feat made all the easier by Tyndarius's royal pride. Then, at night, whilst the whole palace slept, he crept into the princess's room and bundled her sleeping body up into his arms without any extra exertion. Before the palace had a chance to awaken, he had flown Sparta and was well on his way to his own kingdom in Attica. Helen's fate, however, was not yet sealed. Perithous was still determined to marry his own daughter of Zeus, and to do so he enlisted the help of Theseus. Both men left Attica, not to travel to a nearby kingdom as Theseus had done to snatch Helen, but to venture into the underworld in pursuit of Persephone, Zeus's daughter by the goddess Demeter and wife of Hades. There was Helen, barely 12 years old, having been forcibly taken from her family and her home, suddenly alone in a strange kingdom. Tyndarius was not about to let his daughter, blood or not, be abducted by an arrogant Athenian, however. He entreated Helen's brothers to rescue their sister. Castor and Pollux did not hesitate to act upon Tyndarius's pleas, 
Equally distressed by the abduction of their young sister, they invaded Theseus's kingdom whilst he was trapped in the underworld and returned her to the hearth of her mortal father. Time passed and like it did for all Greek women, the time came when Helen would have to marry. Tyndareus invited all of the eligible men of noble birth in Greece to Sparta and fascinated by the prospect of the Peloponnesian princess's beauty, they all came. Yet it was not for Helen to choose her own husband. Whilst the young princess watched from afar, Tyndareus weighed up the candidates for the position of his son-in-law. As he looked upon them all, however, he realised his mistake. He saw in their eyes the same desperate greed that he had not recognised in Theseus so many years before. Whomever he should choose would result in the unfettered fury of the rest. He despaired at his predicament. That was until he was approached by the ruler of Ithaca, cunning Odysseus. Odysseus was clever enough to know that he could not win Helen's hand in this competition. His riches were no match for those of his fellow suitors. Instead, he decided to use this opportunity to secure himself the hand of Penelope, Helen's cousin and Tyndareus's niece. He promised to advise Tyndareus on how best to secure his and his daughter's safety among the men vying for her hand if he would, in turn, convince his brother to give Odysseus Penelope's. Odysseus's reputation preceded him and the king agreed. Odysseus's plan was this. He made a bargain with his fellow suitors that regardless of whom won Helen's hand, they would band together to defend her husband if any of the others threatened to harm him or his new wife. Each suitor, as yet unaware of which one of them may become Helen's husband and all hopeful for their chances, agreed and swore a sacred oath to the effect. Eternally grateful to Odysseus for having unburdened him of his fear, Tyndareus did not hesitate to arrange the king of Ithaca's own marriage to his niece Penelope. Now free to choose a husband for his daughter, Tyndareus welcomed Menelaus into his arms as his new son. And with this, Helen was wed. Over the next few years, Helen's life settled down. She gave birth to her own daughter by Menelaus and named her Hermione. Her life, however, could never truly be her own. Far from her relatively peaceful life in Sparta with her husband and daughter, a wedding between two others was taking place on Olympus. These were the nuptials of the goddess Thetis and the mortal Peleus. All of divine Olympus had been invited to their wedding, with the exception of the goddess Eris, otherwise known as Strife, perhaps for obvious reasons. Scorned by this slight, Eris arrived during their wedding banquet, invite or no, to spread discord amongst the guests. She brought with her an apple, a simple piece of fruit that would, as it turned out, lead to the most infamous war of Greek history. The goddess threw the apple into the crowd and declared that the feet at whomever the fruit fell was the most beautiful of all the gods. Every guest turned to watch as the apple rolled to a stop perfectly equidistant between Athena, Hera and Aphrodite, who stood in a triangle facing one another. Regardless of Eris's motivations for casting the apple into the wedding party, each of the three goddesses coveted the title that the fruit offered them. In order for the question of which of the three goddesses was the most beautiful to be settled, a judge was chosen by Zeus from among mortal men to decide which of the three goddesses should receive the apple. This man was Paris, son of Priam, the king of Troy. 
Each of the three goddesses offered Paris a prize based on their specific skill sets in the hopes of bribing him to choose her over the other two. Athena promised that if he should choose her, he would never lose in any military venture, whilst Hera offered him the chance to rule over all men. It was Aphrodite, however, whose offering won out in the end. She offered Paris the hand of Helen, the most beautiful woman in all of Greece, if not the world. To claim his prize, Paris made his way from Troy to Sparta and was welcomed with open arms by Menelaus. The relationship between guest and host in the Greek world was a sacred one. Menelaus was required to attend the funeral of his grandfather during Paris's visit, however, and set out from his place trusting that this guest would take care of his wife and daughter. Yet after nine days of feasting on Menelaus's generosity, Paris, with the assistance of Aphrodite, seized the first opportunity he got to steal Helen away from Sparta. Helen's own willingness to leave her home with the young Trojan prince is a matter of constant disagreement amongst the ancient sources. If anyone were to ever doubt the multitude of possibilities that led to Helen leaving Sparta for Troy, they need only turn to Gorgias. In the later 5th century BC, Gorgias, a rhetorician, wrote his Encomium on Helen, an encomium being a rhetorical work composed specifically with the task of praising its subject. In his Encomium on Helen, Gorgias explores the six distinct causes for Helen's journey to Troy. In exploring each of these possibilities, however, Gorgias comes to the same conclusion, that Helen was not to blame for her actions or the subsequent Trojan War. Now, not all ancient authors were quite so forgiving, and ancient literature is scattered with depictions of Helen as both the innocent victim of abduction and the adulteress who betrayed her husband. Under these latter circumstances, many characters of myth spare no venom in heaping upon Helen the blame for those who died during the Trojan War. See, for example, the tragic plays of Euripides, Rhesus and the Trojan Women. The extent to which Helen was or was not a character the ancient reader was meant to sympathise with appears to have been in the hands of the author, who, more often than not, chose the Helen that best suited their own purposes. Helen's reception at Troy, however, was less warm than Paris's had been at Sparta. Close on her heels were the armies of her husband and the other Greek men who had sworn an oath to defend him against any man who attempted to steal Helen from him. They were prepared to reap great war upon the Trojans for Paris's insult to the Spartan king, rather than his treatment of its queen. Paris's family, however, looked upon Helen as the source of their plight. The Greeks sent ahead of their armies as envoys Menelaus and Odysseus to demand the return of Helen, but Paris refused. From that day on, war had been declared. As the fighting raged outside the palace, Helen longed to return to Sparta and hold her daughter once more. The choice, however, was not hers. Now the wife of Paris, she was sealed tightly within the walls of the Trojan palace. Even her husband's anger could not be satisfied simply by the return of his wife any longer. His vendetta was against Paris and the whole of Troy by proxy. Menelaus required victory if he was to restore his pride, a quest that would result in ten long years of fighting and an immeasurable number of dead. Helen herself was unable to do anything but watch from the palace that had become her cell, alongside the women who hated her. It was therefore by a messenger that she learnt of Paris's death in the tenth year of fighting. He had been shot in the heart by an arrow launched by Philoctetes from Heracles's bow. The war, however, was not over. It had grown beyond two single men. 
During this time, Helen had been shown to be a prize and there were men within the walls of Troy that considered themselves entitled to her now that Paris was gone. In the end, it was Dephoebus, Paris's younger brother, who successfully claimed her as his own and thus Helen was wedded to her third husband. Meanwhile, in the Greek encampment, Odysseus had come up with another plan. This plan involved the ever-famous Trojan horse, a massive wooden structure in the shape of the four-legged wooden creature that could hide within it a substantial number of the Greek army. In order to ensure that the structure would make its way inside the Trojan walls, the Greek army pretended to surrender and flee their campsites because of some supposed insult to the gods, leaving behind them the horse as a dedication to the Olympians in order to gain their favour. Upon seeing what would later become known as the Trojan horse, the Trojans themselves decided to bring the gift to the gods within their city to disastrous results. And unsurprisingly, that night, the Greek soldiers broke free of the wooden horse and attacked the city from within. Now, Helen could hear the men storming the palace from her chambers, but was prevented from seeking them out by Dephoebus, who had rushed to her side and set to guarding her the moment he became aware of what happened. As the battle waged on within the city walls, the Greeks' victory was inevitable. Menelaus made his way through the palace, cutting men down from his path until he reached the room in which Dephoebus was holding Helen. Helen watched as her first husband killed her third before her eyes, the war finally at an end. The couple's reunion, however, was not a happy one. Helen could see in his eyes the anger he felt towards her from the moment he turned to face her, the mutilated body of Dephoebus lying bleeding at his feet. Helen's first instinct was to flee from the possessed man before her, but there was nowhere to go. Menelaus grabbed her by the hair and although she struggled, he was able to drag her from the palace. Once outside the palace walls, she found herself amidst the Trojan women who had been rounded up and penned in together in the Greeks' encampment, destined for slavery. With the city of Troy in ruins at the feet of its inhabitants, Helen watched as the women of the royal family wept over their fallen sons and husbands, only pausing to cast her fleeting glances of disgust. That they blamed her was clear, and is stated over and over again in Euripides' Trojan women. They were now all at the mercy of the Greek soldiers and their commanders. The Trojan women were divided out amongst the Greek men to serve as their slaves and concubines, and Helen waited in anticipation of her own fate. Now Menelaus was still burning with fury at the shame he had endured. Even now that he had reduced Troy to rubble along with its inhabitants, he looked upon Helen as the origins of his plight. Indignant, he vowed to have her executed once he had returned to Sparta. After she had seen and suffered so much, however, Helen would not let her husband's anger be her end. Her beauty, which had so often been her downfall, would be her protector. Helen unwrapped her garments and exposed her breasts for all to see, forcing her husband to turn her gaze upon her. In that moment, it was said that Menelaus's fury was abated by the very same thing that had captured the longing of so many men before him. Helen's actions reminded him of the prize he had fought so insistently for. She bore her breasts in order to save what was left of her life. Of Helen's life after that day, there is little to say. She returned to Sparta with her husband and was greeted with joy by her daughter, Hermione. The land she returned to, however, had changed since she had last set foot there. In the time she had been gone, both her parents and her brothers had left the world of the living. She heard the people whisper that her mother had died of shame, and the fate of her sister Clytemnestra was an equally tragic one. 
From then on, life continued as it does, and she settled down to life as Menelaus' wife once more. As is recorded in the Odyssey by Homer, the son of Odysseus Telemachus would then visit Helen and Menelaus at their home in Sparta some years after the Trojan War, whilst his father Odysseus was still missing, in order to seek out information. And she would be the first to recognise him for who he was whilst her husband was none the wiser. Together, she and her husband shared with Telemachus the story of her abduction from Sparta and the subsequent war, each with their own memories of how events had unfolded. For Helen, however, there was no further attempts to snare her from her home after the wreckage that was Troy. Now, in order to provide you with a generally uninterrupted version of Helen's story, there were a few major variations in her tale that I left out of the main part of this podcast, but wanted to mention to you now that you had listened to her story in full and could fit them in with what happened. The first of these is what I like to describe as the unsuccessful abduction. So in one version of Helen's story, she never actually makes it to Troy. No, this is not a reference to a version of the story where the Trojan War did not result from the abduction of Helen and the injury of Menelaus's pride. There has, however, been recorded by some authors versions of the myth where the real Helen was never there. That is to say, Zeus, presumably in an attempt to protect his daughter, commanded Hermes to whisk Helen away from Paris before he could transport her to Troy. Hermes then hid Helen in Egypt under the protection of King Proteus until it was once more safe for her to return home. In her place, Hera left a phantom that looked so alike the real woman it filled everyone who came in contact with it, even Menelaus. It was this phantom that made its way to Troy accompanied by Paris. This version of the Helen myth is the subject of the 4th century Athenian dramatist Euripides' play entitled Helen. The play itself opens after the Trojan War has come to an end and Helen has been a guest in Egypt for 10 long years. In that time, the king of Egypt, under whose care she had been, has since passed away. Instead, his son now rules the country and has decided to marry Helen himself. At the same time, Menelaus lands his ship in Egypt, having been taken off course on his way back to Sparta. Menelaus is still under the impression at this point that he has retrieved the real Helen from Troy and stows what is, in fact, the phantom version of the Queen in a cave away from prying eyes until he can find a way out of this land. In his search for aid, he stumbles across the real Helen praying to the gods, unwilling to marry the new king of Egypt, whilst the fate of Menelaus still remains uncertain to her. When the two are first reunited, it takes Helen a few moments to convince her husband it is truly her, and that the phantom he has had in his possession is nothing more than just that. Once Menelaus accepts that this is indeed Helen, his wife, the two set about planning their escape from Egypt. In order to fool the king of Egypt, Helen devises a plan that involves telling him that this man who has landed in his kingdom is a Greek soldier who sailed alongside her husband Menelaus and who has brought news of his death. She insists that although her husband is now dead, she cannot marry the king of Egypt until she has performed the proper funeral rites for Menelaus. For this, she requests the use of a ship to which the king agrees, eager to finally have Helen for his own. To his dismay, however, Helen and the Greek soldier who is revealed to be Menelaus use the very same ship to flee from Egypt's shores in order to return to Sparta once more. But you didn't think that was going to be the only variation, did you? This is Greek myth after all. 
So although our version of the story came to a close soon after Helen's return to Sparta, where she was destined to live peacefully from this moment on, there is another version of her life after Troy recorded in Pausanias' description of Greece. In Pausanias' version, Helen's life does initially settle down after her return to Sparta. That is, until the death of Menelaus. After her husband's passing, his two sons, Nicostratus and Megapenthes, the products of relationships outside of his marriage to Helen, banished their stepmother from Sparta. Helen fled to Rhodes, where she believed she would find safety in the home of her friend Polyxo. Polyxo did indeed take Helen in, but she harboured a secret anger for her new guest. Her husband had died during the conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans, and she her and she held Helen responsible. Once Helen's guard was down, Polyxo disguised her handmaidens as Furies, the goddesses of retribution, and sent them to kill Helen. The false Furies came upon Helen whilst she was bathing and hung her from a tree. It is said, however, that once Helen left the mortal world, she was welcomed to join her father Zeus in Olympus and spend the rest of eternity in his divine kingdom alongside her brothers. Now, as you've probably gathered just from this short introduction to the myth of Helen, this is a story full of complexities. And if you want to read more about Helen, I do have a few ancient literature recommendations for where you can go to build up your understanding of the different parts of her life. Now, of course, there are both the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. The Iliad and the Odyssey are epic poems, the first of which accounts certain events of the Trojan War and the second of which Odysseus's journey after the Trojan War, both of which discuss Helen in various circumstances. We then have the aforementioned play Helen by Euripides, which recounts the events of Helen's story that take place in Egypt, and the Trojan women by Euripides, which focuses on the women after the fall of Troy as they await their enslavement. And like with any other myth, a good place to go is of course the Library of Greek Mythology by Apollodorus, which contains a multitude of various different myths and is a great place to start. But hopefully you have enjoyed this latest instalment of my myth digests on That's Ancient History. If there are any specific ancient myths you ever find yourself curious about, please do tweet them at me at That's Ancient on Twitter and let me know and I can potentially add them to the list for future episodes. But with that, until next time, I'll speak to you all again soon.